Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The last 2,000 years of Western, and more recently world history, have been about Christianity as the enduring legacy of the classical world. That's the broad summary of historian Tom Holland's new book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. Holland is a best-selling author of books on the Roman and Persian empires and the origins of Islam, but this book ranges much further, as does the following conversation. I interviewed Tom Holland in St. Bartholomew the Less, a 12th-century church in the city of London that is one of the remaining buildings of a great Augustinian priory that included a monastery and hospital, still in operation, and being modernized, which explains some occasional noise in the background. St. Bartholomew's founding coincided with one of Christianity's revolutionary periods, as you will hear, but I began by asking Tom Holland to explain the broad thesis of his book. The thesis essentially is that um, if, if the West is a goldfish bowl and we're goldfish, then the waters that we swim in are by and large Christian. Uh, that, that at least was the metaphor that I had in my head as I was writing the book. And then once I'd finished the book, um, another metaphor struck me, which came from watching the, um, the drama series about HBO, which came out on the telly shortly after I'd finished the book. Um, and I thought that actually the way in which um, the leak from Chernobyl, the radioactivity, affects people and they don't even know that they're being affected, that seemed to me actually kind of the, the ultimate point of, of what the book is about because it's obvious that confessional Christianity you can see it you can feel it you know when it's when it's affecting you but the thesis of the book that is that in all kinds of ways things that may not objectively seem to derive from Christianity notions of the secular the idea of of there being homosexuals and heterosexuals um, the way that we understand time fairly fundamental notions that I think many people might be tempted to think is just human nature actually very very culturally contingent i think most people would say well the secular stands apart from christianity stands apart from religion but in your view it is like a subset essentially i think that that people in the west when they they things that they tend to take for granted almost (laughs) invariably have their roots in some ancient christian theologian and the idea of the secular is a perfect example because it's not a given it's not something that every society in every age has just taken for granted it's a very very distinctive way of seeing society and essentially it it, it derives from well the clue is in the name secular derives from a latin word uh, cyculum which means the span of of living memory so that that gives siècle hundred years to, in French but what it really the, the force of the word is that it's the flux of things it's things that are you know are born and then you die and you're carried away and you get swept away into to oblivion and Augustine as, as the Roman Empire is, is is starting to fall to pieces in the west Rome mm. has been sacked and the Romans are, are worrying about the future of their empire and how it reflects God's purpose he says actually Rome, like any mortal thing, is doomed to, to, to sweep away. The only thing that counts is the eternity of heaven, the eternity of the city of God, which is the title he gives to his great masterwork. And what the church offers is a bond, a religio, to that eternity. What does religio come from in Latin? 
it's a, a word that initially means things that enable you to have a relationship with the divine. So it could be a sacrifice, it could be a, a priesthood, it could be a kind of special celebration of a festival um, and these religiones are seen as being a kind of down payment on an insurance policy you know you give something to the gods and then hopefully the gods will look after you so you can see why when Rome was sacked many people who hadn't been converted to Christianity might have thought that um, you know the gods had abandoned Rome but over the course of Christian history, these two categories, these idea that there's a kind of city of God and a city of man, that there's a dimension of the cyclum, which is flux, and then a, a dimension of eternity to which the church provides a religio, a bond. It, it evolves and it becomes fundamental over the course of the Middle Ages. It becomes fundamental to the way that Christians understand how society operates. And then into the Reformation, it starts the idea of there being a religio and the idea of there being cyclum starts to get privatized in english religio becomes religion it beca religion is something that is is both personal to you and something that exists beyond the dimension of what's coming to be called the the the, the secular and so the, it ends up with the idea that we have now where you have a secular space that is supposedly neutral and then you have things called religions that are in kind of ghettos around the corner of the secular Although, interestingly i was in just outside Tupelo, Mississippi in 1995. And I went to meet this country evangelical preacher. And he lived basically in a compound with a lot of you know, double-wide trailers. I was invited to his house for lunch. I know for a fact that I was the, because he told me I was the first Jew that had ever crossed his threshold. And it was all very you know, polite. And he was explaining to me his deep evangelical faith and evangelical is too broad a term i mean it was very very local kind of southern and he'd gathered around him 10 15 families and that was his congregation anyway we're midway through and he says to me but you do understand you really you're a secular humanist and i said oh what's that he said, you even have your own holy book and i said no really and i thought he was going to produce from his he said i'll show it to you and i thought he was going to produce a volume of nietzsche or something like that and in fact there was this essay written by you know someone he'd studied with at bible college you know defining secular humanism and it and that is sort of what you're talking about about this idea that there's this enormous christian space and that even the secular somehow is a part of it and not standing well, I, I, there's away a, from it's, it. it it's kind of like a weird moebius strip the way that christianity has evolved because i, I think something particularly perhaps in in protestantism it, it's almost as though atheism becomes a kind of logical endpoint. The, the idea of the secular is, is kind of an obvious one, which actually reaches back, to, you know, as I've said, to Christian theologians in the 5th century through the, the Catholic Church in the, in the Middle Ages and then through the way that it gets particularly refined by, by in the Protestant era. And it creates this space which claims to be neutral and in certainly in, in, in Europe perhaps more than in America, but increasingly in America too, this notion of the secular, which Christians had, you know, essentially constructed as something to guard against, now the secular is guarding against religion, and and so it's kind of you know it's that secularists have a, a Christian category that is weaponizing their hostility to Christianity. I mean, it's kind of happening all the time. Um, 
But I would say, we'll say that the, the idea, say, of enlightenment is, you know, we think of the enlightenment in the 18th century and people will say, I have enlightenment values. I, I, you know, I subscribe to the values of the enlightenment. And the assumption is, is that the enlightenment is a, a kind of emancipation from superstition and Christianity specifically. But actually, all the imagery that govern and the assumptions that govern the enlightenment as it emerges in the 18th century derived from Christianity is very obviously, for instance, very obviously Protestant. The idea that you have a moral mission to redeem people who've walked in darkness and bring them into a, a bright light, that you have to overthrow superstition. All of these things are part of the fabric of the Protestant Reformation. So the target of Protestant reformers, of course, is the what they see as the, the, the superstition of, of the Bishop of Rome, who they cast as Antichrist. And the light that, that they want to bring people into is, is the light of Christ that derives from you know, the early blaze of the church. And, and that, those ideas, in turn, of course, ultimately come from, from early Christianity and really from the, from the, the Hebrew prophets. It's the idea of you know, Isaiah is massively into the idea that you, you, you know, people will be brought into light, the whole world will be brought yeah, into this is everything. In Dominion, I think one of the things that really struck me about the book was this idea, I thought of Nietzsche, eternal recurrence, that, that Reformation isn't just Martin Luther no. nailing 95 no. theses be, on the be, church be, be, door. Because, because what happens in the 11th century, which is really the primal revolution in, in European history, people have forgotten about it, basically because it succeeds totally. You know, if you have a successful revolution, you don't remember that it's a revolution. You just come to assume that that's how it's always been. But what happens in the 11th century is that the pattern is set for every subsequent revolution that will happen. And these reformers, they call it reformatio, a remaking. And what they're doing is that they're taking the idea that's fundamental to Christianity, the idea of, of baptism, of being born again, of having your sins washed away, that you become pure and holy unto God. And you, they, they weaponize it and they apply it to the whole fabric of society. And their ambition is to reshape society in a Christian form. And again, it goes back to the idea of the, of the secular. They want to extract the church from the dimension of the cyclone, from the dimension of flux. And they, they see this dimension of the flux as being filthy, dirty, corrupting. And who and is the, the main, main mover in the church? The, the man who is the, who, who really is the figurehead of this process is a pope called Gregory VII. Gregory VII and Luther are very similar figures. They're both deeply revolutionary people who are committed to the idea that the, the, the church has fallen into sin and needs to be cleansed and brought into a new dimension. And both Gregory VII and Luther inspire upheavals that see kings being humbled. So the, the Holy Roman Emperor in Gregory's time is, is made to kneel in the snow outside the castle where Gregory is staying and uh, Luther essentially brings about upheavals that sees Charles V's empire kind of disintegrate and so you see these kind of reverberations being set up and then of course into, in, into more recent times you see the same pattern happening say in the French Revolution. And the cathedrals are turned into temples of reason um, didn't last long. Religion has a place as Marx well, 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 what happens in the French Revolution is that is that you have the same impulse, this idea to uh, bring enlightenment, to uh, see society born again, to cleanse it. And Christ's fateful words that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, which every Christian kind of pays lip service to without entirely, I think, in the early centuries of Christianity, contemplating quite where that may lead. By the time of the French Revolution, 
uh, and certainly not for the first time, there are many precedents as well, it results in a kind of literal convulsion of society that sees kings being, being executed, but also sees the church itself being torn down and Christianity itself being targeted because, of course, the great irony of Christian history, and again, this is an example of this kind of Moebius strip process that, that happens through modernity, Christianity emerges as the most hegemonic, the most powerful way of explaining what man's relationship, you know, how humanity should function that has ever been constructed. And in Europe, it is hegemonic for centuries and centuries, you know, millennium and more. And so that's why the revolutionaries target it. But the reason that they assume that it has to be targeted, that it has to be brought down exactly as the monarchy has to be brought down, is deeply Christian. Okay. Let me press you on hegemonic. Is it because Christian societies over the last half a millennium have been able to more or less subjugate the world? Or are you talking about something else? Well, I think it comes in two parts. The first is that Latin Christendom, so that portion of Christendom which speaks Latin rather than, say, Greek, as happens in the eastern half of the former Roman Empire, that stretch of Europe is incredibly distinctive by the standards of the rest of medieval Eurasia. Everywhere else you have multiple ways of understanding the relationship of humanity to the supernatural or divine. From China right the way through to the Middle East, there are many, many ways of understanding this. In Latin Christendom, once what Christians call paganism, so the worship of the ancestral gods of, of Germany and the Baltic states and so on, once that has been purged, really the only framework for understanding what humanity's relationship to the divine is, is biblical. It derives from the Bible. And the only subsection of that are the Jews. So, the, you know, isolated communities of Jews, but otherwise everyone else acknowledges the kind of spiritual superiority of the Pope. And so that provides for a kind of ostensibly a uniformity, a way of understanding the world that is absolutely unprecedented. And it doesn't operate... In t you know, it doesn't operate solely in terms of popes and cardinals and councils and decrees and things like that. It operates on the level of children being raised at their mother's knee and growing up and having their lives animated on a daily level, you know, and on an annual level over the course of their lives by the rhythms that are entirely founded in Christian assumptions. And so it saturates the way that people living in Europe, who you know, year after year, century after century, the way that they live, that they come to understand the world. And in due course, when Europeans from Latin Christendom come to expand, Spanish to uh, Central America and South America, the English to North America, uh, and then increasingly over the course over the course of the 18th and 19th century to vast stretches of, of, of Asia, and, and then in the 19th century to Africa, the world is kind of brought into not just the orbit of European and American imperial power, but also their ideological power. And the reason in recent centuries, so over the past two centuries, that this way of seeing the world, these assumptions that are rooted deeply in Christian assumptions, the reason that they have become so hegemonic, again, paradoxically, is because they have disguised themselves as being things other than Christian. You mean like Marxism and, and, well, Marxism. Commun and, and, and revolutionary communism 
with the one and a half billion people under yeah so so marxism marxism is essentially marxism is one of many attempts that have been made in the west since the collapse of christian faith among its intellectual elites to justify christian assumptions without drawing on christian faith and so marx you know is absolutely about the you know, this Christian idea that the first shall be last and the last shall be first and that there is a kind of pattern to time and that in due course you know the new Jerusalem will be built on earth I mean it seems pretty clear so if we look at, at, at the abolition of the slave trade people thought that it was a you know an evil but rather in the way that famine or poverty or something like that it's just a way part of how what it is to be human and then at the end of the uh, the 18th beginning of the 19th century Quakers evangelicals in America and Britain decide that it's wrong, that it's an offence to God. They feel that their hearts have been illumined by the Spirit to understand the truth that was always imminent in Scripture, but which until that point no Christian had fully comprehended. And it inspires them to, in Britain, to try and abolish the slave trade. And when Napoleon is first defeated in 1814, the British Foreign Secretary is basically told, even though he doesn't really want to do it, that he has to go to the Congress, which is being held in Vienna, to uh, resolve the state of post-Napoleonic Europe. And he has to construct a, a, a treaty that will oblige all the participants in this Congress to abolish the slave trade. The problem for Castlereagh doing this is that although he is the representative of a very evangelical Protestant nation, he's dealing with the Portuguese, with the Spanish, with the French, who are basically Catholic. So what he does is he draws on the Catholic traditions, which go back to um, canon lawyers originating in the 12th century, the idea that human beings have rights that these are guaranteed by God. Again, a very radical notion. And he fuses his evangelical Protestantism with this kind of rights-based Catholicism, and he constructs what you know, framework of international law that is designed to be neutral between Catholics and Protestants, but absorbs a bit of both. And then in due course, when the British start to lean on the Ottomans, who are Muslim, to abolish the slave trade, they can say... We're not doing this as Christians. We're doing this because this is something called international law. And these rights that we're talking about, everybody has them. You know, they're universal. They're not specific to Christianity. They're universal. And because Western powers have been so, you know, basically have, have structured the way that international relations operate for the past 200 years, they've been able to get away with it. So, the, you know, the United Nations Charter is... is, is kind of pure ersatz christianity <laughs> but it's disguised not to seem that but i think now that that western power is kind of retreating it's becoming more and more obvious that these things that people in the west like to think are universal are actually no such thing that they're very very kind of bred of a specific milieu you know we got to the present without even discussing the beginning and i before i let you go i want to ask you about the very, very beginning of Christianity. Because the book itself starts with an astonishing several pages describing crucifixion and its power. And what I found most interesting was when you write about how actually the cross, that symbol of, as you describe it over and over again, torture, wasn't actually part of the iconography of the early church. Because I think they were ashamed of it. To be crucified was the, the, the fate above all of slaves. And it was the fate of slaves both because it was excruciatingly painful. 
uh, you know, there was no one way of being crucified. It was down to the inventiveness of the executioner, whether you were hung upside down, whether you were nailed, whether you were impaled as you were on that. So all kinds of different ways. So, you know, agonizing, but also very public. Um, people would see you as you sweated, as you bled, as the birds pecked at your eyes or at your genitals, and you would be unable to fend them off. And essentially your agony would serve as a billboard for the power of those who were putting you to death. So the famous, you know, Spartacus, the famous film, crosses lining the Appian Way. That, that is a kind of manifesto. It's a way for, for the Romans to advertise their superiority. And so it's, um, it's kind of astonishing. And the very earliest Christian writings we have, the letters of Paul, he says that it's a stumbling block to the Jews, as well it might be. And it's, it's kind of folly, it's madness, it's lunacy to everyone else. And he's thinking, of course, particularly of, of, of the Romans. I mean, it does seem absolute madness. And yet this idea that out of torture might emerge redemption, that out of, of death might emerge life, that out of humiliation might emerge glory, is one that clearly has an incredibly mythic, symbolic, theological, human power. And it's one that enables Christianity to, to grow and to spread and to have ever more adherence. But even once um, uh, Constantine, the first emperor to become a Christian, accepts, you know, he sees a vision of the cross in the sky and is, is, is convinced, and he bans crucifixion, because um, obviously it would be a, a blasphemy for people to suffer the fate of, of Christ. There's still a sense in which the Romans seem embarrassed by it. They seem embarrassed that they're now worshipping a god who suffered this fate. And so it's only almost kind of a century after the death, uh, after, after Constantine's conversion, that you start to get images of the crucifixion. And when you do, the thing that's very striking is that Jesus looks amazingly buff. I mean, he's really honed and oiled and he's wearing the kind of loincloth because he's an athlete. He's an athlete who's entered a contest and has triumphed over death. And he has a look of kind of calmness. He's a victor. He has the look of a general celebrating a triumph in yes, Roman terms. It's that wonderful uh, word, Pantocrator. Yes, he's the ruler of all. I mean, everything is under his power. And really in the Eastern tradition, the Orthodox tradition, that, that, that is how he's always betrayed. But what happens in, in the West, in the Latin-speaking West, is that... Uh, there's an increasing emphasis on his suffering and people, it's, it's like people want to stare into the heart of what he went through. And this is reflected in, in the prayers and the theology and the liturgy that emerges in the West in the Middle Ages. But it's also represented in the art. And shortly before the first millennium, you get the first image of Jesus dead on the cross. It's in a, a chapel in Cologne Cathedral. And again, over the course of the centuries that follow, the images of Christ on the cross become more and more brutal, <laughs> more and more disturbing. I, I, I'm just going back to, to the beginning of our conversation. It is around the time of Gregory the Seventh and so on, and you begin in, in the subsequent 150 years to start seeing things like, you know, Roger van der Weyden's yeah. triptych, you know, which is a pretty horrifying depiction of a deeply suffering man. Yes, and I, and I don't think it's a coincidence that these um, images start to appear at the same time as you begin to get this kind of revolutionary process in the West because I think it's tied up with the idea that in a sense you, you have to mortify the flesh to escape it and this becomes a very important part of, of what will become the kind of religiosity of this process of revamatio. But one of the, one of the, the paradoxes is the more that you, you emphasize the horror of the crucifixion, so in a sense you become deadened to it and perhaps what's happened 
over the past few centuries is that that Christians have have become anaesthetized to, to the horror of what crucifixion actually represents. So it was your intention when you were writing the book to perhaps remind them? It had never been brought home to me until um, I, uh, I, I made a film about um, the Islamic State and went to a city that had been kind of basically pulverized first by the Islamic State o- occupying it, then by the Kurds taking it back. But in this city, people had been crucified. Captured people had been crucified by the Islamic State. They were very near. They were in striking distance. And to be in the presence of people who had crucified as the Romans had crucified and who contemplated the cross as the Romans had contemplated the cross, I can tell you, really brought home to me <laughs> just how terrifying it was. And of course, the aim of, you know, the aim of crucifixion for the Romans was to intimidate and terrify. And, and it works because it is the most horror. you know, the idea that you might suffer it is chilling. Chilling indeed. Dominion really is an excellent book. It makes you think, and there are nuggets of interesting history that you probably didn't know or may have forgotten on every single page. My thanks to Tom Holland for taking time to speak with me, and my thanks to you for taking time to listen. And remember to visit the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Go through the archives and listen to the Bible Study for Atheists podcasts and... Please make a donation to keep these podcasts coming.